This is the Researcher's Code podcast. My name is Victoria Carr and I interview pioneering women who are pushing the boundaries of technology and scientific research, from computational social science to robotics. I ask what their research is about, how they got into tech, and what their advice would be to women and minorities wanting to work in tech. I hope you enjoy listening. On this podcast, I will be speaking to Dr. Raya Hadzal, a senior research scientist working on deep learning at Google DeepMind. Welcome, Raya. Can you start off by telling us a bit about yourself and what you do? Sure. So, yes, my name is is Raya, and I've been here in the UK working at DeepMind for about five years now. I lead a research team uh, at DeepMind, and we work on a lot of different problems around AGI, artificial general intelligence. How can we design machines and algorithms and robots that can learn from the world um, in a similar way to how we learn? You are a researcher in artificial intelligence, but you started with a degree in religion and philosophy. So can you tell me how you went from this, like something completely different, into computer science? Yes, I I did start my academic career in religion and philosophy. I did my undergraduate degree in that. Um, It was very interesting at the time, and it was really an exercise for me in learning how to think and how to speak and how to argue and how to to have a critical uh, dialogue. But then after doing that degree in religious, religion and philosophy, I really felt like I was interested in more concrete uh, topics and I wanted to be able to make a difference. I wanted to be able to think about the world uh, in more concrete terms. And so I started taking classes in how to write computer code and how to learn um, how to write Java and um, got really interested in this. And then I started a PhD um, and started working with neural networks, machine learning, and robotics. Um, And since then, I've really stayed on the same path of being interested in the subject. So was it a very steep learning curve? Because obviously, there's so much to catch up on with the maths and stuff. Or did you have like kind of that interest that it, it was fairly straightforward for you? Because a lot of people approach it differently. I took about a year of classes, just background classes um, in math and in um, various aspects of computer science. And then I did a master's program. So there were, there were a few years in there where I was transferring between one discipline and the other. Uh, but it was pretty straightforward. And I really, I was sure that this was the path that I wanted to go down. So if you've got that conviction, then it's really just about taking the time to learn all of the things that you need to know. Great. So you mentioned that you were looking at artificial intelligence and robotics in your PhD. So could you describe a bit more about your PhD thesis? Yeah, it was based around the question of uh, how can a robot learn to drive itself around the world without bumping into things? And through different types of environments, um, down a path, you know, through the woods, uh, through the grass, around objects, in a parking lot, all these different places, how can a robot learn to be a very general uh, navigator? And we turned to machine learning to solve this problem Um, because we recognized that it would be very, very hard to code these sorts of rules. 
um, into directly into a computer program. So instead, we used a, a neural network, um, um, a convolutional neural network, and the network was trained as the robot dro drove around to distinguish between obstacles where it couldn't drive and um, areas where it would be able to drive. So traversable and non-traversable areas. And it would its only information was whether or not it could drive smoothly or whether it would bump into things, whether it would run into obstacles. And then it would take that information that it got and then it would extend that to the rest of the world and make predictions. Um, and by the end of the project, we had a robot that could um, drive down a path in the woods with all of the complexity there of the um, um, leaves on the ground, branches, um, shadows falling across the path, uh, glare from the sun coming through the trees, all of that sort of visual complexity and still manage to follow the path and drive along um, to reach a goal. So that was one of the first times that I really started to think about how machines can train themselves, how machines can learn um, and what are the algorithms that are important for that? Um, and that's largely the work that I've continued at, at DeepMind. Great. And like I've heard it's been very a very successful thesis because it won an outstanding thesis award when you finished up. So I guess that encouraged you to you know go further with this research as well. So before you um, joined DeepMind, you were um, a postdoc. You had various postdoc positions mm -hmm. before then. So were you working on very similar aspects, robotics? Uh, I used the, the, the postdoc and then the, the other industry job that I worked at before I came to DeepMind. I, I used those to really get a little bit more breadth and learned a little bit more about uh, robotics. So um, um, there was an autonomous driving vehicle, a, a big SUV actually, at Carnegie Mellon, and I was able to work on that. And the robot was trying to distinguish um, how, how can it um, build a map of the terrain, even if it's snowing or foggy, and these sorts of things, using different sensors. Um, so it involved less artificial intelligence, more understanding about sensors and processing data and these sorts of things. So mm. a valuable education. Great. It's kind of interesting, I guess, like you went deep into the PhD and then afterwards you're like, oh yeah, what can I, else I can apply my research and like get a more general overview afterwards. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, one of the interesting points I'd like to make is what made you move into, I guess, industry and work for DeepMind and has this actually differed from working at an academic institution or has it been quite similar? Because I know DeepMind has got quite like an R&D environment. So has there been any differences there? There is certainly a difference here um, between an academic environment, but it's not, uh, it doesn't feel like the rest of Google, for instance, we're not building products. Um, we're somewhere in between. So I like to think about DeepMind as an independent research institute. That's sort of what it feels like. We have a lot of freedom here to research the topics that uh, we find to be um, the most compelling and um, that, that, will, that will tell us the most. <clears throat> The difference, though, from an academic lab is that the pace is much faster. We work in larger teams. We're very collaborative. Um, and we're all sort of, we're all trying to solve the same core set of problems. So that really keeps us united in a way, which in an academic lab, I think that it's often a little bit more chaotic with different uh, researchers pointing in different directions. Yeah, interesting point you make there, actually. 
Um, so you mentioned, obviously, you work on artificial intelligence. But just to start off with, could you, in layman terms, describe what deep learning and artificial intelligence is to our audience? Well, it's funny. It's a term that's come that's really changed over time. Artificial intelligence, that is. Um, and deep learning is a relatively new term. Um, we're really interested in how you can train complex models to make human level predictions or decisions about the world. Um, and we're primarily going to use data to train these complex models, rather than, for instance, having an expert make um, come in and say, ah, well, this is how you diagnose cancer. You first look at this, and then you look at this, and then you look at that, and you look for this, and then you make your decision. Um, instead, we're going to say, let's feed in data, let's feed in lots of images of scans, for instance, um, and then use uh, algorithms to train that model to then come out with those decisions. And the difference, I think the reason why the general public is starting to call this artificial intelligence, and really put that AI stamp on there, is that those decisions are starting to get to that level of human, human performance. Um, in a variety of different areas. So we're seeing superhuman level uh, gameplay on various types of games, Go, chess, um, video games, um, probably StarCraft very soon. Um, and we're also seeing human level performance in terms of assisting with medical uh, diagnoses. Um, we're also seeing uh, human level performance in um, in, in, in some tasks of, for instance, understanding speech and recognizing things in images and um, um, understanding what's what's in a, a text document, things like this. So that that that's what um, that's what I think of as as AI. It's an awfully broad definition. Um, I'm mainly interested in the decision making side of it. So rather than simply train a big artificial neural network, one of these complex models with lots of data, and have it spit out labels for images, for instance. For instance, I'm interested in how um, we can use these models to make what we call agents that can make decisions in the world, meaning they can decide, how am I going to solve this maze? How am I going to, um, what's my strategy going to be for playing a game? Uh, for a robot, it might be, um, what is a sequence of motions that's going to allow me to, um, you know, put blocks in a box or stack them up? So it's at that level of both seeing the world, perceiving it, but then making decisions and taking actions. Mm. And that sort of closes the loop on, um, on having artificial agents that actually interact with the world rather than just a, um, a big neural network. Yeah. So you've mentioned loads of examples of where uh, you could apply artificial intelligence and you started to touch on where you're applying these agents. So what have you applied these agents to um, and what has been the most interesting project while you've been working at DeepMind? I've worked on lots of interesting things. It's hard to it's hard to pick one. Um, I will be biased with the and think about the work that really we've just done, and that's on navigation. And that, that's a project that we started in some ways, tying back to the work that I did when I was a PhD student. Um, but really now we're thinking about a, um, an 
a computer program that both perceives the world, like I said, and also makes decisions about how to navigate um, and get to a goal. And in this case, we're using all of um, a city as our area to, to, um, for a virtual agent to navigate in. So how can we possibly do this? Well, we've taken Google Street View, um, which, which most people have probably seen and interacted with as they're using maps. And we took Google Street View, this sort of virtual environment where you can see the world from um, a street level, and we turned that into an interactive game environment where um, our computer program can run. You can think about sort of a, a little virtual person or virtual robot um, um, moving through the street view images, seeing the world from that perspective, and it needs to find its way to different places in the city. Um, and so over a lot of data and experience, it's able to explore the city, learn where different things are, and learn how to get from point A to point B. So what you're, you're describing is this series of images with, of street view, but it doesn't necessarily have a, a map representation. So it is navigating through a city without a map, essentially, but just using the kind of spatial awareness it would have in images is that is that how i would right. describe it that's, in that's in right. in, in mean, short we, we use maps a lot of course we rely on them a lot we rely on our our phones and gps and uh sat navs and all of this to get us around the city but we could all navigate on our own without any of that if we needed to we could simply use our own um our own vision and our own memory to see where we are and remember how to get different places and start to map out the, the, the world because that's one of the key cognitive capabilities that humans and other animals have is that ability to navigate over, over large spaces. Um, so our agent has exactly those same constraints. It does have a form of memory, uh, a neural network memory. Um, it doesn't get to see a map. It doesn't ever get told where it is. All it gets told is if it got to the location that it was told to go to, it gets a reward if it goes there. So like I said, we have set this up as sort of a game. When it gets to a given location, it's told to navigate to the shard. When it gets close enough to the shard, it gets a, a reward, um, and just as if it's playing a game. And then it gets told, okay, now go to Trafalgar Square. And it goes there, it gets a reward. Um, so it has to start, you know, and this is a key, um, a challenge of exploration. You need to learn about the city by exploring, but then exploitation. If you tell me where to go, I want to go there as quickly as possible so that I get a reward. Awesome. So how successful was the project and uh, what cities did you try this on? So we, we tried it on uh, three different cities, on London and Paris and New York City. And uh, we tried transferring the information between the three cities. So um, can I learn in one city and then um, learn to travel around more quickly in another city in the same way that we can become world travelers and good at um, um, exploring new places. And it worked at extremely well. I was worried that this project wouldn't work at all when we started it. Um, I was worried that the agent would never really learn how to um, um, how to cross uh, you know kilometers of distance across the city 
it worked very, very well. And it's really fun now to watch uh, videos of the agent sort of zooming across Paris um, or, or, or through New York. Um, what bridge should I cross in London in order to get from one place to the other place? Yeah, it must have been really fun. Actually, I um, saw a small video um, of the of the agent going through New York and then in London and New York, they've got quite like a very structured square road. So yeah. was it was it easier for the agent to navigate in New York than it was in London? Because London's a bit more windy. Exactly what we thought. We thought that the agent would have a, a much harder time in London, um, but actually it had an easier time learning London. And I think that that's because London is so quirky um, and there's so many distinctive landmarks, so many distinctive buildings, so many distinctive views, um, whereas New York is very similar over broad areas. So in terms of really getting to know a city, London in some ways is easier because you remember all of those individual, that street corner that looks different from all the others. Um, and, and, and the agent was able to learn to learn that. Well. Oh, I see. That's really interesting. One more, I will say one more thing, which is the um, we have just completed a, a piece of research, which is an extension of that. It'll be published by the time this podcast is out. Um, and that allows this the agent to um, follow directions. So now we are using directions uh, from um, Google Maps, the same directions that we follow in order to get to um, to find our way somewhere new. Uh, we've taught the agent how to read those directions as well. And so now the agent can read directions that allows it to very quickly learn how to get to new places. So previously it had to memorize where everything was in a city, learn the whole thing inside out like a London taxi driver. But now um, this new agent can go to a new city, read directions and get to a new place on its first try. Um, without needing to, to go through that very hard exploration stage. So are those directions, are they um, quite formulated and quite accurate? So turn right at the second street, or is it very basic, like just turn right, turn left? So we use exactly the direct the driving directions that you would get in Google Maps. So it will say... Um, uh, bear left in 200 uh, in, in, in 200 yards uh, in, U, in, in the US um, and turn right on this street um, turn left and then right you know it, it has um, doesn't have a really wide vocabulary and it is sort of synthetic language it's not like you know if you were to give me directions to get somewhere um, but it does have a lot of different little maneuvers that the agent needs to learn how to interpret this information and how to follow it. I see. I see. I see. Great. That's really interesting. Looking forward to reading that paper when it comes out. So um, one thing that I was really interested in reading about, um, the the downsides of neural networks. Um, neural networks aren't necessarily perfect because they tend to forget a task they have done a long time ago, mm. whereas humans tend to remember, like riding a bike. Um, I'm not sure if I've described that correctly, but could you describe that a bit more and what sure. research you did to try and improve on that? Sure. Um... Yes, I should say that there are many ways in which neural networks are not perfect <laughs> and nowhere near what humans can do. Um, um, there's, a, there's a lot of these ways. Some of the main ones are, for instance, transfer. Um, so being able to take, I, I learn how to hit a ball here and then I you know, can transfer that playing golf to 
tennis, you know, playing tennis, um, our agents would not be able to do that. Um, what's another one? Understanding novel things. If you put together a, a half cat, half dog, we would look at it and say, oh, that's odd, but that's a half cat, half dog. Neural network would have no understanding of, of what was going on, even if it had been trained to recognize cats and dogs. One of the other ways is continual learning. Neural networks right now work best when they are trained with a big data set that stays the same. Um, we call it a stationary data um, because it doesn't change and can learn from that and be sure that we're learning all of the different information in there um, in a stable way. Now, if you just take that data, that same data set and you chop it up into pieces and you say, first, I'm going to learn about cats and then I'm going to learn about dogs and then I'm going to learn about tennis and then I'm going to learn about this and that and the other thing, it will forget all of the previous things. Um, and that's called catastrophic forgetting. And it's one of the, the issues, especially when we start thinking about AI and these sort of interactive agents, um, because as they interact, they forget what they have seen before. Um, so some of the, so, so my group, uh, my research group here at DeepMind, this is one of the things that we have been working on for the last few years. And we've come up with a few different solutions. Um, there's one approach that was inspired um, by neuroscience. And that's a process called um, elastic weight consolidation. Um, it's inspired by something that happens in the brain, or at least in mouse brains, called synaptic consolidation. The idea there is that if I'm going to learn about something, for instance, riding a bike, then the skills that go into that, the most important skills are going to affect, um, because of neuroplasticity, going to affect the, um, the, the, the way in which my, my brain um, um, learn, learns, learns those skills, say balance of riding a bike. When I go to learn a new skill, stop riding the bike and learn how to um, play piano, then um, the brain freezes it reduces the plasticity, it makes those particular neurons that were changed, makes them a little bit more stiff and resistant to change, less plastic. So now when I'm learning the new skill um, of playing the piano, I'm protecting um, the most important neurons that were that were adjusted before. So we, we took this the same idea and um, we coded it up in an algorithm in a neural network. So the neural network over time, as, it, as an agent learns a sequence of different games or different tasks, it's going to identify just the very individual parts, the neurons in that network that are most important, that are most critical for the skill that was just learned, and it's going to reduce the plasticity of those. So it's, pre pre it's preventing catastrophic forgetting through the minimal set of um, sort of interventions needed. I don't want to turn off learning across the whole brain, across the whole neural network, otherwise I won't be able to learn anything new. So I have to keep that plasticity of the neural network, but still preserve that little bit of knowledge that's key to still performing on that, on that earlier task. Um, so we've, we, we did some work uh, on this, and it really, one of the exciting things is that this research 
has spurred a lot of other research from other institutions, from other groups, um, from other researchers. And they've come up with a lot of new methods, actually, that are um, that either are extensions on this elastic weight consolidation or are better than it um, or completely different. But there's a real community now thinking about this problem of how how can we prevent catastrophic forgetting and enable continual learning over time? Fantastic. Great. But where do you think machine learning will take us in the future? There's no doubt that machine learning and artificial intelligence is going to fundamentally uh, change our world and the experience of humans in that world. I think that for me, I focus on two main outcomes. One is that it's going to allow us to understand our own intelligence. And that's something that really drives my research is my interest in understanding how intelligence emerges um, through interaction with an environment um, and how these different cognitive tasks like navigation and memory really work. But of course, we are making a tool and it's a really powerful tool because neural networks can, uh, can ingest a lot of data and they can figure out very complex solutions to very complex problems. So some of the uh, big problems out there, things like uh, climate change, financial inequality, things like this are really hard even for human experts. If they can have some of these tools to help them come up with new ideas, new solutions potentially, then that can really change our world. So the areas of uh, medical uh, finances, um, climate and other sort of scientific questions, um, genetics, these are all areas in which I think that these tools are going to have a, a, a very large impact. Um, and I've noticed previously that you've talked about the implications of ethics in artificial intelligence as well. So I was wondering if you could comment on whether there is a need for more awareness of ethics in AI and if there's anything that we could do to improve it as well. Yeah, if there's more researchers that want to work on this, then uh, DeepMind has a research group that specifically thinks about ethics and policy for artificial intelligence. It's a really important area. Um, I think that I think that DeepMind um, and a lot of the other uh, companies and universities are really taking this seriously. So I feel pretty good about that, that a lot of the difficult ethical questions are being confronted as they come up, um, as we push this technology further. There will probably be things that come up that we have not, have not predicted. Um, but if we've got uh, research teams thinking about this and also policymakers thinking about this and aware, then we're in a, then we're in a good position. Um, I mean, the things that I think are really important to be aware of are how uh, AI tools, machine learning tools can change how decision making is done, for instance, whether your credit card application is accepted or not, whether or not you get a, um, you know, get the loan that you want, whether or not you're let out of jail, whether, you know, what search results come up when. So, so these sorts of building bias into the system or um, job seekers with available jobs. So there's lots of companies that would like to make money doing this automatically. 
uh, and, and providing automatic tools that will find you the perfect person for your job. Unfortunately, they all tend to learn the biases that already exist that, oh, women shouldn't be hired um, for technical jobs. Well, no, that's not true. That's something that's just extrapolating from current statistics. Um, that doesn't say something about the abilities of the, the, the job seekers. <laughs> Definitely. And I think we can kind of relate to that in our daily lives. So I like that's kind of, you know, integrated in our, like just searching Google terms and being faced with these images that actually like we think are incredibly normal, such as like an all white male set of images describing CEO. But actually, we need to start challenging these biases. Um, great. So I'm going to finish off and ask you, what advice would you give somebody who wanted to start in technology or computational sciences? I think that I encourage people all the time to do this. Uh, I had somebody write me and say that because she saw a talk that I gave, she was um, inspired to quit her uh, degree in sculpting and go into um, computer science, which I was a little bit sad, though, because I think that the world needs <laughs> sculptors as much as it needs female computer scientists. Um, but I hope that she does well. Uh, I think that it's important to find something that you care about and use that to drive your interests and to motivate you. And that you can't be afraid of getting your hands dirty. Uh, one of the great things about the field of technology is that there's so much information, so many resources available. So you want to run a sophisticated neural network and train it on a data set that you've created, you can do that very, very quickly through taking some code off of GitHub, um, understanding how to put together a data set, um, training these models, and let that, let that experience of getting your hands dirty tell you whether or not if this is a field that you want to go into. Um, and also give you that that stepping stone to uh, to get started on on your own your own path. You were listening to the Researchers Code podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, or whatever podcasting platform you use.